Thank you to all our transcript volunteers. You're doing a great job helping us make sure the transcripts are published together with the podcast. If you'd also like to help out with the podcast, just email us at hey at uxpodcast.com. That's H-E-Y or H-E-J. You choose. UX Podcast Episode 256. Hello everybody, welcome to UX Podcast. Coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden, we are your hosts, James Royal Lawson and Per Axbom. Balancing business, technology, people and society. With listeners in 197 countries and territories in the world, from the United States of America to Vietnam. And today we have something exciting. It's, it's a link show. Uh, and I feel actually really excited today because I feel like these are the shows that we don't do very often, but we get to geek out about something very specific, uh, a topic that you choose one topic, I choose one topic, and or one article each, and we just dive into it uh, and see what happens. Do you mean we don't script these? <laughs> we should. <laughs> do we ever? <laughs> but the two articles we've got for you today, um, one of them is about public touchscreens in the covid era they need a rethink is the subtitle of that one it's by mario noble he's a ux designer in los angeles california and the second one up is newsletters or an enormous rant about writing on the web that doesn't really go anywhere and that's okay with me uh, <laughs> by robin rendell he's a designer at century um, he works um, and lives in san francisco Apparently, he's from southwest England. Yeah, I found that in his about page. I threw you off there, Pad, didn't I? By the way, I kind of split up the task of reading out the titles uh, yeah. of the articles. I love that it's not scripted because then I sort of... Because I'm not looking at you either right now. I'm just looking at <laughs> our two articles and I didn't realize, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, yeah. And everyone's out there listening, thinking, get on with it. <laughs> so this one that you chose, uh, it was dirty. The first thing I, I, I thought of when I'm just reading the, the, the title of it, the public touchscreens in the COVID era, you think of how dirty you've seen over the years, you've seen sort of pictures of keyboards and how dirty they become. And uh, oh. when you zoom in with a microscope, of course, on touchscreens, you've seen that as well. You know that people use their mobile phones uh, when they're on the toilet. Uh, and it's just... It feels really filthy and it's disgusting. And, and it's just sharing all those germs with other people on all these touchscreens. Maybe want to buy gloves, but I need <laughs> to buy gloves that work with the touchscreens. And it's like, oh my God, I need to read this article. That was actually my well, first thinking, just reading the title. <laughs> so the title really triggered the germaphobe in you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, yeah, this, this is about, um, so yeah, what should we do about public touchscreens in the COVID era? And, um, okay, it's it's something that, well, all of us have become a lot more aware about um, sanitization and um, and hygiene during this um, pandemic. Um, now, the 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 evidence isn't kind of well. The the science behind COVID and um, surfaces is a little bit mixed. There, I mean, yes, it, it stays on surfaces and can survive, but it's maybe not viable. But the WHO does still recommend that you should, or WHO should, you know, they still recommend you should be careful with surfaces, and and that is to do with the fact that not all surfaces are the same. 
Um, some surfaces are much, much better at harboring bacteria and viruses and disease and such. Um, that can be viable. Other ones are not really made for, you know, for the job. So mm-hmm. things, things die pretty quickly. You know, they don't reproduce, they die off. It also made me think, I mean, it's not just about COVID, because what we've seen, of course, uh, during this past year is that there's a lot of other diseases and illnesses that also have like plummeted uh, when it comes to how, how prevalent they are. So really changing our behavior changes everything. Yes, and that's exactly it, Pat. That's for me was the was the um, what really got me interested in this, because it makes you really look back and assess our attitudes towards um, interfaces we touch. I mean, because we've been touching interfaces for, like you said about keyboards, mm. you know, we've used, used our hands to uh, interact with computers um, pretty much since day one. Um, in fact, pretty much certainly. I don't think we were doing it by any other means. Uh, maybe <laughs> even, even feeding the ticker tape was using yeah. your hands to feed it in. Yeah. But, um, but COVID really has put this into the, the, the forefront. Um, and and you know, making us look at that and think about what we could do. Um, so I wanted to you know, listen to this or think about this not just from a COVID aspect, but but from a, um, a hygiene perspective in mm. in general. Um, and well, just to give you some more context or inform, you know, information examples, I guess about this. Like we've we've got personal touchscreens that you said. We've all got devices. We've all got uh, mobile phones these days, tablets, and so on. Um, but those are personal. There, there are a very limited number of people using that device mm. more often than not. I mean, I, it's rare that someone else touches my phone other than me. Yeah. So, so as far as kind of spreading germs, bacteria, and so on, um, that, that kind of reproduction rate, I suppose you could say, from germs on my telephone is probably reasonably limited. Um, but and you, even f- getting- you even feel uncertain about lending your phone to someone else because you're always afraid that they'll see something that they're not supposed to see. Well, they're just really, really personal. Yeah. Um, and I actually do wipe mine every morning. Um, <laughs> but that's more because I don't like all the greasy finger marks you can when see. You, oh, when you said be. wipe, I thought you were joking that you were actually oh, er- erasing the content on it. Oh, that, <laughs> now that, yeah. The tinfoil hat goes on and I just blow all my devices in the morning. No, well, I, I clean my glasses, I clean yeah. the phone and so on every morning. It's part mm. of the routine. Uh, but no, but then you've got um, everyday p- um, touchscreen public touchscreen devices so these are things like we've been used to for, for decades with like cash um, registers um, and t- cash dispensers yeah. um, point of sale terminals and um, self-checkout at, um, at stores um, at airports you know, yeah. Um, yeah check-ins mm-hmm. at airports mm-hmm. um, or even hospitals and, de- and, and other um, you know, medical facilities that's mm-hmm. quite often now you'll have to fill in your details on a, on a touchscreen thing before you know as far as checking in here in Sweden, we've got loads of um, queue mechanisms that are based on, on like pressing a screen or touching the right kind of thing to see which type of errand that you've come to the shop for and so on. Um, palm, you know, parking payment um, systems and devices. And if you're um, right on public re- transport, I mean, even the button to say you want to get off the bus. Yeah, restaurants. You know, there's restaurants now where uh, pinchers here in Sweden and in Europe as well. That um, you know, the whole thing is built on when the restaurants are open. Um, ordering stuff on a, on your own tablets or on tablets that are around. There's plenty of tablet-based ordering goes on in in uh, restaurants. When you come into restaurants, you can at the beginning or, or lunch restaurants and so on. You maybe press your order on a screen. McDonald's, all those ones now are just touchscreen stuff. When you go in, how um, are we so even alive? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's just the touchscreen aspects. But you've got mm. manual interfaces as well, as he brings up in the article. Mm. These are the ones like, and Don Norman's going to love us for this, non-automatic doors. 
You have handles on doors. Mm -hmm. You have to push doors. You make touch. You touch surfaces to open and close mm -hmm. doors. Um, railings. Are UX's favourite? Lifts and elevators. Yeah. The control panels in those. And we oh, we talked about that many a times. Um, their uh, whole genre to themselves. Um, you've got toilets, public toilets, which generally do have people doing some cleaning work there. So they're not kind of like without sanitising aspects to uh, public toilets. But you still, there's a lot of things you touch in toilets. Um, and it's interesting about toilets because when you're in a restroom, you become more aware of the germs, even though they, of course, exist everywhere. I think more in that space, I do actually, I sort of, I pull up my sleeve to touch the door handle. or That's what I do sometimes at crosswalks as well. Because mm -hmm. I, I become more aware of it for some reason in, in certain uh, spaces. Yeah, and I also started thinking about that too, that we have, um, um, we have levels of expectation of, of, of hygiene um, awareness or hygiene respect, I guess. And um, the, the article doesn't talk about this in particular, but it, it made me think about it, that we have, um, you know, you have health and safety standards when it comes to food handling and restaurants and food preparation. That if you work in those environments, there are very controlled, you know, there are a lot of laws and rules and things. You and you have to go through education processes to be certificate, you know, to get a certificate that you actually, you've had the education to deal with food stuff in these kind of environments. Like you said about toilets, public toilets, um, we're all very aware ourselves when we go into these places that you know we know when they're not nice and clean. You see it straight away. You f you sense it when you go in. You mm. can just see straight away that you know, bits of paper on the f on the floor. Ah, oh, this one hasn't been cleaned recently. You can probably look up at the that list that they have on the back of doors saying yes. when someone signed last time they're supposed to clean it. And you're oh god, that was yesterday. Oh no. So you know we've we've got a, like a system in place there, a recognition of hygiene levels and, and mm. expectation of hygiene levels and and even understanding ourselves about what we should be doing, even though in many situations we maybe don't, at least didn't used to follow protocol as well as we should have done in some of these situations. But uh, when it comes to user interfaces, there, we haven't until recently, until the pandemic, had any real kind of, not, not as a population, I don't think it was a world population, I don't think we've had really expectations of, of how the hygiene aspect would be with some of these um, mm. interfaces. Exactly. Um, so that's the new thing. It's that people will actually expect you to. So you can actually improve the user experience by giving the experience of something that is cleaner. Yeah. Well, then, if you look at the um, the article, goes on to talk about the advantages of it, like you know why did we have touchscreens in the first? Why have we gone to touchscreens? Um, and oh, he lists quite a lot of of potential um, or speculates a lot on the advantages that they are and. He comes to the conclusion that the, this list of advantages, um, I'm not going to go through them, but the, the point was here that he realized that these advantages are almost entirely advantages for the business side. Yeah. And that the advantages for the, for the user, from the user perspective, well, it doesn't really shine through a huge amount on the, um, on the list. Um, in many cases, it's been, we need less people if we've got a screen instead of a person. Right. Exactly. It's not like we were screaming for some of these touch screen devices. It was more that organizations saved money by not having tellers at the bank. They could have a machine outside to dispense money. You don't need to kind of queue at a checkout to kind of pay for your groceries. You could actually do it yourself. All this stuff is giving advantages um, to the organizations and indirectly maybe gives you cheaper prices. Um, or you, uh, there's a shorter queue maybe to those things than to yeah. the cash. I, 
but the interface has been used to transfer mm-hmm. um, work from someone else to you, effectively, in many of these situations, yeah. rather than being user-driven um, desire for change. Um, so then we move on to, in the article, about um, um, things that affect screen usage. Um, now during the pandemic, basically, he doesn't say that specifically, but he's, he's inferring that it's during the pandemic that um, you're, you've got a perceived risk level when it comes to using an interface. But like the device in your household, maybe it's low risk because there's a very small number of people who are using it. Um, if um, if it's a, a, a certain group of staff that use a certain device all the time in a shop, then maybe that's also reasonably limited because you, you, if you think about number of contacts then the people using the device is very limited it's the people that work in the store mm. um, then you've got maybe a device in a, a bigger organization um, but you are sure about how it's kind of been sanitized or controlled and then you've got the ultimate one the public random space like people can come up to a, a interface in the street effectively or in a public space and, and use it we have no idea how many people who's using it or anything so it's so you, interesting about trust because because you always think of the confined space that you find yourself in. So if it's only the staff in the store that are using it, you feel safer. But one of one of the people on staff, of course, could have just been in a really dirty place. You have no idea. But that yeah. doesn't really factor into your expectation. No. And and then I want the last bit of this I want to bring up really um, um, is he talks about um, the inclusion aspect. And here's something really interesting, and I don't think we'll have time to to dig into it, you know, fully. But um, we already know that touchscreens can be can be not hugely inclusive at times. But here we've got the situation about whether you've got um, you're reluctant to use a touchscreen because of the hygiene aspect. Yeah. But you might not have a choice because of the way that the organisation or the interface has been designed, there isn't an alternative to the touchscreen. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting thing to think about um, you know, from an inclusive design point of view um, and pandemics and hygiene in general. How do you cater for the people who need to use your interface but really don't feel comfortable or maybe feel anxious about using a touch interface now? Yeah. That, that, was, um, that was very interesting to start thinking about. Yeah, it feels like it's going to just keep growing, uh, actually. Yeah, and I mean, if you skip to something kind of conclusions or, or further thoughts about this, is that um, he <laughs> suggests he comes with some possible solutions, suggestions about how we'd avoid or move on from touchscreens, um, and comes to the conclusion that um, um, foot control was the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually don't really agree because I think that just opens up a whole another can of um, of, of <laughs> inclusive inclusive design problems, and you know how do you how do you make that usable for everyone and complex interfaces? Because some of these ones we have in existence are quite complex and having to use like stamping on stuff to control it is going to be real challenging. Um, so I, I, think, I think touch screens are actually here to stay, even though we've gone through a pandemic and we're getting worried about the hygiene aspect. Um, but I, I think maybe we'll move into a realm where there's, we're definitely going to expect more hygiene when it comes to interfaces. And, and maybe we'll see... Um, like you know, in Japan they've got the whole automated toilets kind of thing where they do all the hygiene themselves. Maybe mm. there's ways of kind of something wiping across a screen to to sanitize it um, oh, between usage, and you know a camera would tell. Just like I mean, in gents urinals, when you move away from the urinal, a lot of them flush automatically. And there's a lot right. of self-flushing. Even toilets now self-flushing toilets because there's a sensor. So you could. He did mention UV cleaning as well. I mean, screens are easier to UV yeah. clean. But and I, I, that's something I thought about that. 
we have a lot of keyboards, but screens are should be at least it feels like it should be easier to clean than keyboards are with the wipe mechanism, as you were saying. And that goes all the way back to the beginning when I said about the how um, certain surfaces are better for kind of breeding germs and others. Yeah. And uh, I, I read one example the other day about things like um, athlete's foot, for example. Mm. That thrives fantastically um, on surfaces because um, it only needs a little bit of moisture and warmth and it yeah. kind of keeps on growing. Uh, whereas things like COVID on a, on a hard surface like glass mm. isn't going to last very long at all. Um, but, you know, so... So there, when you think about the different types of surfaces, um, then our touchscreens don't really fall into the kind of worst bracket of, of unhygienic things. But if you don't do any hygiene whatsoever, then potentially there could be stuff building up on that over time that isn't as nice, or if the frequency of use means that stuff is quickly transferred. So, so I definitely think we're going to move to, to thinking more about um, hygiene and screens. But I wanted to throw out the questions like, what can we do now to do with with improving the, um, I suppose, hygiene of our touchscreen interfaces if they're not going away? Mm. And it, I started to think about maybe, well, okay, can we, um, can we, should we put reminders on screen about sanitizing the screen before use? Um, should we put reminders about sanitizing after use? You know, if you're doing the self-sanitizing route, um, can we? update our interfaces to reduce the number of touches so you're actually oh yeah touching the actual <laughs> interface less because we've designed and we know that in, oh. in a lot of interfaces less touch less clicks if we can make an comparison mm. with web as well is a good thing in many situations um so so maybe that's another aspect to think about can we can we reduce the amount of touching to improve hygiene people will have to change to way shorter email addresses to lessen the clicks when they enter their names. Yeah. Mm. Flashcards that they can scan. You mm. can hold up a flashcard with your email address and it scans it off. I'm now seeing the, uh, the the screens and interfaces themselves as toilets because you would actually have to have a flush button that you press after each use. You flush flush the screen and you actually yeah. clean it off. <laughs> or wave your hand in front of the sensor and it would then <laughs> wipe across. That's fascinating. This is so. This was. This really did get me thinking about a lot of different aspects mm. of of well, industrial design, um, use of inter interface de design, um, inclusive design, um, understanding people's emotions and feelings when they're using interfaces. So mm. I think it's a it's, it's a really good article to get you to trigger the whole you know grey matter and get you thinking about the wilder world, the wider world that we design in. Yeah, loved it. So moving on to something completely different, uh, we're going to talk about uh, newsletters. Well, at least the article uh, is named newsletters, uh, but it is really an enormous rant, uh, as we mentioned. And there are no real conclusions, I think, but it raises some important issues. And some things I think that you and I talk about from time to time uh, over the years, uh, how content lives on the web, how it's distributed, and, and how it's archived. Uh, and it really starts out uh, as a, a love letter uh, to newsletters. Uh, Before you go into the details of that, mm. I just want to give our listeners, a, uh, if they haven't looked at it yet, then it's, it's really interesting how this, news, this article is presented. Yeah. Because it's, pre mm. it's presented almost poetically. It's beautiful. Um, with, with short 
well, just small paragraphs or even just sentences and a, and a, a picture, a black and white um, old kind of sketch or whatever, um, presented at the same time as the text. And you mm. move a, a screen at a time between, like almost like a presentation of these poetic lines in the article. Yeah, so it's impossible to read it fast, which, which it forces you to reflect on, on each sentence. Uh, I don't know if you've tried it on mobile. It's it's the same beautiful experience on mobile as well. So it's it's really well done, uh, and it's exactly something to remember when we go on and talk about the content and how it's distributed. Because something like this wouldn't fit into a newsletter, and I don't know really what it would fit into uh, to be replicated. Yeah, that's that's a little bit of an uh, the irony of this is yes. that he's produced something which can't work as a newsletter. Exactly, because it's a piece of art. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think that perhaps is uh, one of his points because, I mean, he's he's expressing his love of newsletters, uh, but it quickly goes on in in this intro in the first part of actual four parts, but he goes on and part one starts later. Uh, He he expresses um, his disappointment on this, how could this be the future and really that when we when we do newsletters, it feels like we're going back to something old because uh, it's, it's parchment. He was talking books in yes, books exactly. were going back to parchment paper. Yeah, it's somewhat antiquated, it says, and so and and <laughs> and books are so much better than parchment in the same way that websites are so much better than email. Yes, exactly. Uh, and he tries to try to tries to think of some reasons why this could be that people are choosing to publish newsletters. I mean, it really has grown. I don't I don't have any stats with me, but people are talking about Substack these days. Uh, every other day, someone's starting a new newsletter. It's like back in the day when we, everybody was starting a podcast. Now everybody's starting a, a newsletter. So so part of it is, is they're really, really easy to publish. Anyone can type text on a keyboard. Well, not anyone, but you know what I mean. So once you can do that and you have something to write, you go somewhere, you write a newsletter, you press publish and you have some subscribers and it, it distributes to all those subscribers. Which means that it also notifies all the subscribers automatically because they get the email and everybody knows how email works. And there is another aspect of it is, of course, writers can get paid via newsletters, uh, perhaps more easily than you get paid via publishing on a blog, for example. And alternatively, he's also uh, suggesting that websites are difficult to make and they can't notify people when new things are published. And we'll get more to that. <laughs> and they aren't able to pay writers as easily. And the difficult to make part is what frustrates him because now we are, have come, we're in 2021 now, we're in a time when it, websites can be beautiful. And I think that's why he's made this post so beautiful to exemplify this. Uh, but it's not for everyone. Everyone can't do this. Uh, so he, he's he's looking for a solution to this and uh, going after a world where we actually publish content on the web and provide the ability for people to subscribe to that content and for the content producers to get paid. And of course, uh, anyone listening who is familiar with RSS is thinking RSS because that is the solution, isn't it? That is how content on the web uh, has been distributed for decades. Uh, I, and how we use for podcasts. I mean, exactly. the, whole, the whole world of podcasts is fundamentally mm-hmm. built on RSS. Exactly. So if you don't know what RSS is, you are using it because it's the way that the content is distributed. through. Po- that's how this episode came into your podcast player is because there's a text file somewhere pointing to it. And that text yeah, file even, is called RSS. 
even if you're listening on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, because mm. we feed them with our RSS and they they reuse that. So it's 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 all RSS for podcasts. Exactly. And this is what we find so interesting because when we it seems so obvious to those of us who understand and have used RSS for many years. Uh, many people used used to use FeedBurner as the way to access content on the web and read uh, different stories from blogs, from news sites, because they all had RSS feeds. Many still do today, but the uh, the awareness of what RSS is and how you can use it to your advantage is not that widespread. And he, one of the things that he is suggesting, Robin is suggesting that we actually, if RSS was to be rebranded, uh, then that could be a way forward. Because I'm RSS, still angry at Google. Yes, I am extremely angry at Google still for killing RSS. Um, because they they killed basically they killed it off, and I, mm. I still I'm uncross still because mm. they didn't just move it into Gmail. Because mm. I think they could have moved RSS, it would have fit into Gmail. Um, but they didn't do that. They just killed off their reader. Yeah. Um, and that's what we saw. Yeah, someone even suggested on Twitter to me uh, when I shared this article that this was the perfect platform for starting a social media platform because uh, you had people who were really engaged in this tool mm. and you could have connected them with, with each other as well. And just it's just so frustrating. I, I, I can feel this frustration because RSS is so extremely simple. It's standardized. It works. It's being used. But and and for me that is the UX problem. Why isn't it getting used by more people? What is making it so f so hard to use? Why are not people not publishing blogs instead of newsletters? Because the problem, of course, with newsletters is that the content gets lost. It's not searchable on the web. You can't find it via a search engine. It won't uh, go into uh, archive.org uh, as something that you can search up there. So it kind of gets lost as well, which uh, to me is, 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 is the sad part of this when people choose newsletter as their distribution way. You're right. It, is, um, mm. it does. It, it's, if you think about the effort it goes into producing content, mm. then newsletters are, are quite tragic in that sense that you, you, you don't have a long shelf life for a newsletter. Right. And, and exactly, and and often when I try, I find some. Like sometimes I, I start subscribing to a newsletter, and it turns out there's no archive of the earlier ones, which there of course would be if you had a blog post. But sometimes I realize people also switch platforms. So I, oh, mm -hmm. I tried this platform, and then I tried that platform. So all their content, even if it's saved on the 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 company that supplies the, the solution for their newsletter distribution, even if it's saved there, they don't move the content from one to the other as they change platforms. So it keeps getting lost in different containers uh, across the web, which are really well, don't hard Don't start to find. me off on redirects, Per. Sorry? Don't start me off on redirects and how bad yes, we are at... Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so... It's so essentially we're saying that the reason people use the antiquated technology is because it's easier to use. There's less friction, and we've failed completely at at making it a frictionless experience uh, or or a, a more appealing experience to actually publish in a way that the content becomes more available and more future-proof as well. I think also about the whole expectations thing ties in with the first article that. Um, we seem to have still got lower expectations of how a newsletter is designed or is how it looks. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm gonna if the content's good, I'm gonna read it even if it's just plain text. Mm. Whereas 
our expectation for a website, if I was if I was met by something as simple as, as the newsletter, I mean, okay, Medium got quite close in, ma- in many ways. Some of these article sites are very slimmed back. But I think by and large, our expectations are, are more kind of busy when it comes to design of, of content on websites compared to content on, on or via email. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And something that struck me as, as I was pondering upon newsletters and statistics, and I was looking at people who have started Substacks and they're saying, oh, I'm pressing send now, I'm sending to 200,000 subscribers. Uh, it's the same problem as we have when doing podcasts and doing podcast statistics is that you send something out and you can maybe see how many open and some people actually you can't see if they open because they've blocked if you see opening and and some people of course will just open the email and delete it and a lot of people won't read it so it's just impossible to know uh how many readers you have you, you know how many subscribers you have you have no idea how many actually read it and have actually created rules for for sending your for your, your email or your newsletter straight to the to the <laughs> to the trash uh, so that aspect of it really intrigued me in, in, in looking at all these numbers that people throw out. I'm sending it to this and this many subscribers. What does that really say? But but I guess ultimately, mm-hmm. if we, you want, I don't know if you want to move into the paying for content aspect, mm-hmm. but that that is kind of, I suppose, the more important metric for people who are producing content um, and, and, well, for a living or to, to, mm-hmm. to earn money from them. Um, how many how many read it doesn't really matter. It's how many have paid you. I suppose is more important. Right, exactly. And sometimes you can probably make some conclusions around uh, how many of my subscribers are willing to pay for the content. Uh, but the way that it works is that a lot of people just have people sign up for free at first to get as many subscribers as possible. So it's really hard to measure that how how that um, fraction of users how many they will be in the end. Uh, so, and I, I I can't say that I'm really an expert on the the pay, how how people pay for for newsletters and how much they pay. Uh, it it seems to for, to me to be a whole new world because I don't I pay I don't pay for newsletters. I haven't started no. yet, at least. I don't know if you do. No, I don't mm-hmm. either. But um, but at the same time, um, the article talks mm-hmm. about how paying and subscribing mm-hmm. to a writer's work should be one click away. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had things like Patreon. And, um, what was that service we had in Sweden where you could add a little kind of um, button on your website to click and make a micropayment? Yes, exactly right. I remember what was that. that called? Oh, anyway. Yeah. Um, but but that's the whole thing about how you know you kind of want as a writer when you're writing something you want um, to offer people the ability to to reward you. Um, with just a click, like you would, you know, click a like button or kind mm. of a heart or whatever on something that you do that, and you would get a little bit of money. And and the article talks about some of the s- systems that are developing to do with that. I think Coil mm. and Puma, Puma's a browser. I think I don't really know much about them, but they're 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 trying to build on a, a web monetization API. So as in you'd you would have the mechanisms behind, and wallet would be connected, and if you clicked on something, it would allow a micropayment to someone mm. for the content they've done. And that actually, I mean, that's 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 one of those things I've always really hoped we could get to, because there are many times when I've I've clicked like on something and I've thought, no, no, this actually is really good. And I'd be prepared to pay, you know, a few cents, a few pence, or a few krona or whatever to to reward writers for some of their work because mm-hmm. it's it's given me some value. And but I, I maybe don't want to subscribe. Right. Now, I have to mention that actually Medium offers something like that as well. If you say that on Medium, you publish an article and you say, I I'm, I'm want to get paid for this article, then actually the people who do pay for subscribing to Medium, as they like stuff, the uh, the amount of money or uh, is distributed across all these likes or claps, as they're called on Medium. So there are versions of that around. 
but there's nothing as of yet getting standardized. And it's, it's still people are not choosing to publish on the web, I think, because it appears too difficult. Hmm. Yeah. It is still not just writing words. Mm. You have to do a lot of other things, too, to get your stuff out there. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote here from him, and he, he says, um, um, I, see this, I see the web as this public good that's been hijacked by companies trying to sell us mostly heartless junk. Mm. And you know, that's, um, I think me and you have both got that, that feeling um, about, in fact, Heather Burns, um, we both read an article, also another article that yeah. we aren't covering today, but she wrote an article about how uh, basically how millennials haven't kind of like lived the dream that maybe as Generation Xers have done, where the web was still in its early days and we thought it would be this wonderful utopia mm. where we could publish all content, it would all be free and everything was connected to everything, it'd be always oh, all wonderful. And then the, the next generation growing up of... Um, being in this kind of Facebook closed world where everything is to do with kind of sucking advertising information from you and selling you stuff and that that free open web that we had in our vision in the beginning mm. is already gone. So they're they're trying to fix you know, in Heather's article she's talking about how we're, with privacy concerns now, we're trying to fix the issues caused by the closed web rather than revigorate and reintroduce the dreams of the open web. Yeah. Oh, that's, it's so true. I love that article. <laughs> we need to link that in the, in the show notes as well. Mm. And I, this is connected. This is connected completely connected yeah. to it, though, because yeah. the you know, death of RSS, the 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 rise of paywalls, mm. the growth of newsletters, mm. the monetization of content. You know, it's all this stuff is interconnected. And I think I mean I think that is exactly what Robin is feeling as well, because he's he's trying to end on the positive note. I mean, he's excited about this sudden popularity of newsletters because it shows how. Desperately, people still want this kind of writing, and that is the kind of writing that we, for me, we used to have back in the day. And so we value the web in that way, and we just need to, as he puts it, take the web back. It's a revolution. Hmm. <laughs> so do we have any suggested listening after this, James? We always do. Mm. Um, got two for you. Um, First up, a reasonably recent episode, episode 251, where we talked multimodal design with um, Cheryl Platts. It feels, feels relevant now when we've talked about touchscreens and different ways of interaction with, um, with interfaces that um, if you haven't already listened, listened to episode 251, then um, do that because that's a really interesting chat about the, the challenges, not just of voice, but other um, types of, uh, or multiple interfaces that you can deal with in your mm. work. And you've put another one in here, that episode 50, James and Pear begin with words. That's, yeah. that's a long time ago. That is. That's, oh, God, it's over seven years ago now, mm. Pear. Um, and that's where we, um, oh, we talk about just words and simplicity of, um, uh, of oh, the importance of the content, I guess you could say. Um, oh, yeah, that's the, is that the one? This is a web page like that. Yes. Rant this about is a web page. It. Okay. Mm. People will remember that, some of us. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but again, linked to the, mm. the importance of just the words and content and how oh, they are the things that we need to lift up. So if you can spare a little bit of your time, then join our little community of volunteers. We're always looking. It's like a micropayment. Oh, yes. <laughs> if you don't want to give us some money, because I, I mean, we, we do allow some, you know, people to contribute mm. um, with some money, mm. but that's just one form mm. of kind of payment you can give us. The other one, of course, is you can donate a little bit of your time. Yeah. And it's so, so appreciated. And we're always looking for people to help with um, the transcripts and, and now even the publishing. Remember so to email keep. us. 
Sorry, Per. I just wanted to email us. Say hello. Remember to keep moving. <laughs> See you on the other side. James, did you know the first French fries were not actually cooked in France? No, Per, I didn't know that the first French fries were not actually cooked in France. <laughs> yeah, they were cooked in Greece. Oh, not only a bad joke, but a tongue twister.